Well, we've spent the last several weeks in the book of Joel, and if you've been paying attention the last uh, couple of weeks, you'll have noticed that this is actually the same scripture reading that we've heard. And that's because in this section of Joel, there are actually, I think, uh, four four, uh, parts of repentance that are described here. Now, just to remind you, because it has been a few weeks, uh, we need to say, well, what, why is Joel talking about repentance here in the first place? Is it just because God is the sort of person who is angry all the time and looking for people who are willing to never stop apologizing? And the answer was no. No, God calls his people to repentance when, through the circumstances around them and in their own hearts, they start to feel that the blessings of the covenant in some way are less clear or even being withdrawn from around them. And when that happens, we look into ourselves and say, okay, is it possible that somewhere I have sinned? And that sin is causing distance between myself and God. In the case of the people of Israel, they experienced an invasion of locusts. They experienced a terrible drought, and they were looking forward to invasion by a foreign army. And under the covenant the people of Israel had with God, these were all signs, uh, these were actually all curses of the covenant. If you don't keep up your end, this is what will happen. Things like locusts and things like invading armies and things like drought. And so it was very clear that, hey, you ought to be looking and seeing this is, God is telling us something about our relationship that it isn't right. Now, the sin that Israel's committed isn't immediately in view here in the book of Joel. I think because generally folks knew what it was about. Joel's audience understood. But if we want to get an idea, you can just read the rest of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, if you want to get an idea, you can even just look into your own heart. Because the truth is that Joel was, he was speaking directly to the people of Israel, but he was also speaking through them to you and I today. The book of Joel reminds us that, yes, we too sometimes experience these withdrawal of the covenant blessings. We experience a feeling of of distance with God. We experience a feeling that our prayers are not being heard. We experience a lack of interest in worship and praise and all of these other things that go along with it. Just to name a few. Because we live under a different covenant Than the people of Israel did. We live under the new covenant in Jesus Christ, in which God has promised to write his law on our hearts and minds, and our response of obedience is, is faith. Is faith. So the question then is: what has gone wrong with my faith? Where am I not extending it to God? We started to take a look at repentance here in verses 12 to 17 of chapter 2 of the book of Joel. And so far, we've answered three questions. What is repentance? Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, rend your heart, and not your garments. We said repentance isn't primarily an outward action that we do, but something that we choose and mean in our hearts. That is then accompanied by whatever outward actions are appropriate to that. In this case, fasting and weeping and mourning. Repentance is true and from the heart. Secondly, we answered the question, how 
How can we possibly do that? How can we go to the person that we've offended and ask for their mercy? Well, it's because the Lord is gracious and compassionate. Verse 13, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. It's all on God here. Joel's not saying, if if you repent, then all the time, every consequence will be removed from you because you have that sort of control over God. I love how he goes and, and describes this in verse 14. Who knows? He may turn and relent. He's just said he is the kind of God who relents from sending calamity. And then he says, who knows? He may relent. And I think it's because Joel's saying, that's up to God. That's not our primary concern. What we need to know primarily is that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He is not going to receive us with a slap, but rather with an embrace. That's the kind of God he is. Third, we talked about who. Who should repent? By this, we really mean how many should repent. If you keep reading here, uh, blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call an assembly, gather the people. Who? The elders, the children, even the babies at the breast, the bridegroom and the bride out of their chamber, which, as we said, means exactly what you think it means. Interrupt the most important relationship in your life, no matter what you're doing, to come and be with God. And then we talked about these infants. These infants, they haven't done anything wrong. They're infants. They can't do anything at all to offend God at this point. Not, not on their own, but they are part of the community that has offended God. Because sin is never entirely and only a private thing. We illustrated that last week with two different examples. First of all, because God said so was number one. Maybe that sounds like cheating just a little bit. Well, you know, what does God think he's doing? But isn't the answer in exactly that question? What does God think he's doing? He's God. He's being God. And if he's really God, he has the right and authority to do that. That's what it means to be God. See, we don't judge God's goodness by our standards. That makes us God. We judge God's goodness by his own. Is he consistent with who he said he was going to be? Can I recognize, at least in some part, that he is good? Enough so that I can extend my trust for the places where I don't really understand. But we also said, we said first of all, we don't need to explain it because he's God. He can make that requirement. But we also said, think about what sin actually does and what sin is actually like. And I shared with you an experience, and it's funny because my dad called me about it this week. I shared with you an experience where uh, I was in high school and I wanted to go see an R-rated movie with a friend and I'm not allowed to do that. So I, I called my parents to tell them where I was going to be and I lied. I lied. I, I don't remember what I said. It was either I'm going to go to this movie that is permissible or I'm, we're just going to go do something else and we'll be back, you know, in approximately length of a movie sort of time because, you know, we're really not very good liars when you think about it. But my friend, when I hung up the phone, my friend was not a believer. He's not a Christian. And he said, so that's what Christians are like. My dad called me this week and said, what movie did you go see? <laughs> I said, Dad, you're, you're thinking of the wrong thing in the message. So, no, it was, uh, we had a funny conversation. See, my sin's not just mine, is it? My sin reflected on the entire body of Christ. 
And does God call us to be the kind of church that says, well, if you send, let's cast that person out. Let's, get rid- let's just disown them, right? That's, that's one way of dealing with sin, isn't it? Well, we're a holy community. So if you're not holy, please get out because you're reflecting badly on all of us. But that's not the community that Jesus Christ is building, is it? If that was the kind of community that Jesus Christ was building, none of you and I could be here this morning. Not a single one. Because none of us is perfect apart from Jesus Christ. There's an old saying uh, that says, if you ever find a perfect church, don't go. You'll ruin it. None of us can live up to that standard. Who needs to repent? It's, it's not just me for my own sin. It's recognizing I am part of a, a community. And I need to uphold the members of that community by bearing the weight of their sin and allowing them to bear the weight of mine as well. This is a whole body activity. As a result, we encouraged ourselves. I encouraged you, and I hope that you at least thought about it this week. Is there someone in this community that you can start that practice with, bearing the burden of sin together? Not becoming a place where we can just absolve each other without any work, you know, just, oh, it's, it's okay. You know, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. But a place where we can say, you know what, that, that was sin. It was sin, and that's not good. But God offers you two things. He offers you forgiveness in Jesus Christ through your wholehearted repentance. And he offers you strength so that sin will not master you in the future. And let's live that together. Some of the greatest revivals in history, do you know how they start? I've been in one. As a matter of fact, Kayla, I don't remember if you were there or not, but it was that chapel when we were at Biola University, undergraduates. And I don't even remember the message that was being delivered, but uh, somebody's talking about our life in Christ, and you know, probably about a thousand of us sitting in that gymnasium listening. And at the end of the message, the guy wraps it up, and you know, he cues the band, and we're going to sing the song, and and do the things we normally do. And someone shouted from the bleachers, why can't that be us? And people started coming forward and saying, I, I've sinned. They started naming their own sins as the Holy Spirit was moving them. That'd be uncomfortable, wouldn't it? It was uncomfortable. But it was good. Because there was freedom. God was doing something in the midst of all of that. Now, the funny thing is, the next several weeks, uh, the president at Biola said, I'm getting calls where people are asking, who, who are these Biola students, and why are they so sinful? Because like the, the news of everyone's confession of sin was going everywhere. That's why this belongs inside a community and not as a public thing. But at the same time, confessing our sin together is one of the ways that we receive the grace of our Lord. And one of the ways we start to see and understand, man, he is at work. He's convicting us of sin, not so that we will be mired in our guilt, but so that we'll finally be able to move out of it by receiving his forgiveness. This is all where we've been. What? How? Who? 
Today we want to end this section with why. Maybe we think that the answer is is fairly apparent right off the bat. Well, because sin is bad and we ought to stop. Because we're really guilty and we got to tell God, we got to do something about it. those, Those things are true. But the text wants us to see something in particular. And it's something that's actually echoed throughout all sorts of different places in Scripture. You see it especially in the Psalms says this in verse 17, actually the second half of verse 17. Let the priests who are praying say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Why should we repent of our sins? Because it results in God's glory. Can we stop and take that in for a minute? Every Sunday when we get together, uh, almost without exception, we always pray that prayer of confession. There are a lot of reasons we do that. One of them is because when we all confess our sins together, it creates a community where no one stands above another where no one can say, I am better than you, or you are worse than me, where no one can say, that person is better than me, or I'm worse than all the rest. When we confess our sin together in that prayer of confession, led in that way, we are saying we are all sinners in need of God's salvation. We are all saved by faith. None of us stands on our own. We all stand on Jesus Christ, or we don't stand at all. Maybe you didn't know that's what we're doing in that prayer of confession, but it is. I think it's a powerful statement of our true equality. Broken people, all loved by the one God, redeemed and rescued and called to a new sort of life. But there's something else that happens there. And it has to do with God's glory. Remember, we, we talked about, hey, if, if I sin, it makes God look bad. People say, so that's what Christians are like. And how are they going to know God except through God's people? When you got to know Jesus Christ, did you go out in the desert somewhere and you got down on your knees and you fasted for 40 days and 40 nights just like Jesus And you prayed until the Holy Spirit came to you and and told you the truth about who he is? Is that anybody's experience in here? I'd be really amazed if anyone raised their hands right now. That would be cool. But but it would be be counter my point. uh, Because that's not the way most of us came to Jesus, is it? How many of you were led to Jesus because you had parents who told you about him? That's me. How many of you were led to Jesus because a friend told you about him? How many of you were led to Jesus because you went to a church and you heard the gospel proclaimed? So you got hands going up on all of them. You're sitting up front. I know you can't see all of them. What's the common denominator in that? Every place, it's God's people. God worked through his people to tell you about who he is. 
See, people will know or sometimes won't know Jesus Christ through us. Not because we have the power or the ability in ourselves, but because that's how God chooses to work. He always sends people. You know, during the pandemic, when we went online only and all sorts of things, we were always saying, this is not how we're, we're not going to stay online only. We can't because God, when he wants us to know him, didn't make a Zoom call. He sent Jesus Christ. He sent a human being because that's how he tells people. There's this great passage in the book of Romans that says, and how will they hear unless someone tells them? How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Does that sound spiritual to you? Like God sent a a spirit or a vision or a revelation. No. Someone got up and walked and went. It was a human being. It was a person. The world will or will not know Jesus Christ through the witness of his people, not by his people's innate power and ability, but through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so when we mess up and when we do it wrong, we are compromising the world's ability to see the glory of God. Although let me tell you, God is still gracious and merciful in the midst of that. And he will use his people in ways that we didn't understand and didn't expect to reach people. I've encountered folks who have said, you know, I want to follow Jesus. And it's because of this person in my life. You know, who, who, who told me about him or, or who lived like Jesus or something like that. And that person turned around and said, really? They didn't know, but God was still doing it. God will still be gracious and merciful. He'll still use our broken and corrupt selves who get it wrong a lot more often than we wish. But our sin doesn't help. This may be the best way to put it. And maybe we think that by revealing our sin, God's glory will be compromised somehow, right? If people really knew who I was, they wouldn't want anything to do with God because I'm such a mess. They think God's no good. He can't, he can't fix me. If people knew my deepest and darkest sins, they'd, they'd reject me. They'd reject the gospel. But that's not actually how it works, is it? What is a greater testimony to the gospel? You ever uh, hear people tell about their, their, their testimony, their story about how God grabbed onto their lives? And you hear somebody say, do you know what the best stories are where everyone goes, wow, that's amazing. It's not the person who was like doing everything right all the time and then was just like, oh, you know, I kind of met Jesus in the midst of being good always. It's the people who are like, I was... I was so lost to drugs. I never could have come out until Jesus came and he changed my life forever. And I'm a completely different person. People listen to that testimony and say, oh my goodness. Or, you know, if they're not Christians, they may use worse words than I use. But, oh my. The the change in that person's life. It's incredible. He, He knows something. She knows something that I don't. And I want to know it. See, God is glorified by our confession of sin. Because you know what confession is? Do you know what repentance is? 
I was wrong. God was right. Give glory to God. I was wrong. God was right. That's what confession is. Do you know, of course you know, how hard it is to confess your sin? How much it costs? Wouldn't people marvel? Say, where'd they get that courage to tell us about that? Where did they get that courage? They were so lost to change and be different sorts of people. It came from the Lord. It came from God. Our confession, our repentance glorifies God. And I think that there are two ways that should impact our confession. And they come out of this passage in Joel. First, It says, let spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? I think there are two correct ways of seeing this. First of all, as a way of saying, God, forgive us our sin for your own good. Give us something good because you'll get something good at the same time. Because right now, everyone's looking at your people and saying, man, they stink. We don't want anything to do with their God. God, forgive us. Give us something good so they'll stop saying that. See, they're working with God in that sense and saying, God, what do you want to accomplish in the world? That benefits me. What do you want to accomplish potentially benefits me. So benefit me so that everyone else will see who you are. So that everyone else will see your glory. Now, that's just a smart way to pray, isn't it? We can both have what we want, God. We can both have what we want. I can be forgiven. I can be restored. Your name can be glorified. We can both have that. That's the first way. But there's something else here which I think is even more important. John Owen was a Puritan preacher, and he's left behind a number of books for us in these days. And he wrote a book called The Glory of Christ, in which he said the greatest thing any Christian could have is to see the glory of Jesus Christ. And folks, I think that if we were honest with ourselves, we might say, well, yeah, that makes some sense. Like, I've, I've read enough of the Bible. I've heard enough sermons to know that we care about God's glory. Like, I'm familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism that says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Yeah, that, that makes sense. But do we want it deep in our hearts? Is that the motivating desire that we have in our lives? God, I want to see your glory. I think there are most of us would probably start to say, well, yeah, I mean, it might be nice. But I don't know if it's the controlling desire of my heart. What if I told you, plagiarizing liberally from John Owen, that that is what Jesus wants for us? To see his glory. In John chapter 17 Uh, This is the end of the farewell discourse where Jesus prays for his disciples before he goes to the cross. It's the last real conversation that he has with them. And that was his prayer. Lord, let them see the glory that I have with you. 
That's what Jesus wants for you and I. That's what he died for. Not just that we would, you know, do some moral therapy on ourselves and live a little better day by day. But so that our sin would be washed away, so that we could be raised to new life, so that we could see Jesus in all of his glory. Do you remember uh, the story of the transfiguration? Shortly before uh, the Passion Week, Jesus takes his inner core of disciples, uh, uh, Peter, John, James, up. Isn't it James? I think so. I hope so. It's being recorded for forever, so everyone will know if I messed it up. But takes him up a mountain, and he is transformed in front of them, and they see Jesus' glory. It's like Jesus was saying, I'm going to give you a taste. I'm going to build my church on you three in particular. Of course, Peter, most of all. And you need to see this. It will change you forever. And I love, you know, of course, Peter responds because uh, uh, Elijah and Moses also appear on the mountain with Jesus. And Peter always has to have something to say. We're alike in that way. So he says, Lord, should I build tents for everyone? We can hang out. This is great. We're having a really nice afternoon. Then they all disappear. And Jesus is like, oh, Peter, you needed to see my glory. You needed to see my glory. This is what the Lord is particularly concerned about, and this is what our repentance begins to accomplish. We start, we reveal in ways we probably didn't expect the glory of God through our repentance. God, you were right, and I was wrong. We reveal the depths of God's mercy. I can belong to you even though I am so broken. You can take me and make something out of even me. And the world starts to finally get a good handle on what it means to follow Jesus Christ. It's not that we've already got it all figured out. There's this great passage again in Philippians chapter 3 where Paul uh, is talking about the, the greatness of the resurrection. He says, I'm pursuing it with all of my life, with all of my heart. And, and then he says at the end, but brothers, I, not to say that I've attained all this yet. Not there yet. One of the last letters that Paul would ever write in his life, he calls himself the chief of sinners. This is the most effective missionary in the history of Christianity. And do we think that our our confession, our repentance will do any less to bring God glory? Our keys to repentance, uh, as we wrap it up, Our keys to repentance is that repentance is something we do with all of our hearts, throwing ourselves on God's mercy, recognizing I can't change this, only God can change this. It's not a matter of outward acts, but an inward change in our hearts brought about by the Holy Spirit. We know, well, even though it's a scary thing, we can trust God in the midst of this because he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love. We recognize that our sin is maybe bigger than we thought because it's not just mine, it's my neighbor's. We realize that our sin is smaller than we thought because it's not just me who carries it, but the whole host of Christians. And then finally, you recognize that repentance is key to demonstrating to all the world 
It was never about us. It was always about him. He makes me right. He died for me. He lives again so that I can live again. It's always about God's glory.